A widow with one daughter was always warning the girl that she must be sure her future husband is a good hunter whenever she married, for he would be providing for both her and her mother. The young woman promised to do as her mother advised. At last, a suitor came to the mother to ask for the girl's hand, but the widow told him, only a good hunter may marry my daughter. Well, I'm just that kind, said the lover. And so the mother went to the girl and told her a young man had come to court her and said he was a good hunter. She advised her daughter to marry him. She did. Everything was arranged and the young man came to live with the girl and her mother. The first day he got ready to go hunting, but then changed his mind and said he was going fishing instead. He was gone and came back late that night, bringing back only three very small fish, saying he had had no luck. The next day he went off again to fish and came back very late into the night again, bringing back only two worthless lizards and the same excuse. He said that the next morning he would go hunting this time instead of fishing. He was gone late into the night and came home with a few scraps he had taken from s some other hunters who had cut up a deer. By this time the old woman was suspicious and told her daughter, you need to secretly and quietly follow your new husband and see how he does his business. So she did. She kept him in sight as she followed behind in the woods until he came by a lakeside where she saw him change into an owl and fly over a pile of driftwood in the water. Oh, she was surprised and very angry that he'd come to her as a man and lied about his true form. She said to herself, I thought I'd married a man, but my husband is an owl. He cannot provide for two women. She saw the owl watch the water for the longest time then swoop down and dive in for a crawfish. Then he flew back to the bank, took his form as a man again, and began his trek home with his new crawfish. His wife hurried on ahead and reached home before he did. When he came inside, she asked where he had gotten the crawfish and where were all the other fish he could have brought home. He told her he had none, because an owl had frightened them all away. Well, I think you are the owl, said his wife, and she drove him out of the house. The owl flew away into the woods to pine away in grief of lost love for the rest of his life, surrounded in his solitude, his heart attached forever to the darkness of night. This is Natural and Wild with Christine Grayson. I'm a storyteller, an Appalachian artist, and a nature muse. Today I'll be musing over the mystery of the owl. Welcome to my show. Owls. Why do we associate them with wisdom? Well, of course, every old myth, legend, superstition comes out of some degree of truth, although it might not have been understood at the time, or misguided, or blown out of proportion even. There are 250 species of owl in the world that we've counted and documented, that is. And every one of these creatures have some straight-up serious skills. 
They have really sharp perception abilities coupled with heightened observation. And so it gives them this acute, incredible awareness that a lot of us just can't even imagine. Just the way they can look at you makes you realize they're picking up on every little nuance and there's nothing you can hide from them. If you've ever had the fortune of sitting down with an owl, the feeling is that they're looking straight into your soul. And so the elevated awareness and perception of this animal is what has caused us to look at it and call it wise. They have amazing hunting skills and they can be really quiet and quick. You don't even know they're there. I remember walking in this rainforest park in Washington State years ago, and out of nowhere, like a moment from a feature film, this giant horned owl swooped down right over the top of my head. I saw it as it flew forward and away from me. It had dipped down to touch my hair, ever so brief and, and light. I barely felt anything. What I did feel was this strange feather-like wind that danced off the top of my head like a magic spell. I never heard the owl coming or going. It was the quietest movement I'd ever experienced. And this was a huge animal. My head couldn't wrap itself around the fact that something so big could move so quietly and swiftly. I'll never know why this owl wanted to touch the top of my head, but I'll always remember it. I felt like I'd been baptized by nature that day. Owls are one of the best rodenticides in the world. They can clean up the place while we sleep and do such a good job of controlling those rodents that there are a lot of people who will pay good money to have owl boxes installed and attract them to their properties. It's kind of hard to get an owl box up correctly. They usually have to be big and put up pretty high. And it's not always a guarantee that an owl's going to be attracted to your box. But there are things that you can do to make it more attractive to them and raise that possibility. Never look at any situation like a, a glass half empty. Because there are too many things that we can always do to make our chances and our opportunities better. And you're always going to get closer to your goal if you just keep on pushing. As for the myth of intelligence regarding owls, it's unfortunately just a myth. Scientifically, it's been proven that the more social birds, like crows and blue jays and other corvids, um, starlings, uh, sparrows, parrots, they have higher developed problem-solving abilities. But on the other hand, owls are not dumb. And trying to compare the intelligence of animal species is, is like comparing cats and dogs. They're all really good at, at what they do. Owls are different than those day-active social birds. They're solitary. They're nocturnal. And they're one of the best night hunters out there. They're hardwired to do what an owl normally does. There are those out there who have interesting and complex habits. Did you know there are actually owls out in the night who will cultivate their own garden of bugs to have on hand? They'll stash meat to rot and grow maggots for food 
and no other bird of prey does this. And speaking of wisdom, we as human beings are also hardwired to feel certain feelings when we see certain facial features. The round face and the giant beautiful eyes of the owl invokes a feeling when we look at it that makes us associate it with more human qualities. And in that way, we feel more connected to them almost immediately. And we usually associate rounder faces with a childish kind of innocence, which is interesting and leads me down a path of wondering about attraction qualities in partners and, and why we're attracted to what we're attracted to in the physical sense which is a whole Pandora's box if you open it up. So this is not going to go in that direction. <laughs> I will say, though, that physical appearances do play a part in our deep set psychological toolbox that we use for survival. I'm sure I'll never really know all the logistics of how all of it works. I just know that most people tend to trust or distrust each other based on the symmetry of the face it's unfortunate because it kind of defies things that we all want to cling to like fairness and equality and civility but there it is and I don't know anybody who likes this aspect of nature because it defies the more evolved and cultured idea of being generous and responding to people according to their personalities and their skills instead of physical appearances but we do still have that in us. And that's one of the tragedies of the material body. What do we do about that? Well, we can learn to trust our communication skills and our intuition, but separate that from more impulsive tendencies to judge somebody based on their looks. But that being said, it's complicated. And if you try to apply that to any sort of romantic feelings, well, there's probably going to be a big, big failure there. We can treat each other humanely and generously and with compassion in everyday life, but we can't change what we're sexually attracted to. And when we do, it's just fake, and it leads to pain and suffering in a relationship later on down the road. If you're not sexually or romantically attracted, you're just not. It's a chemical reaction, and there's no degree of personality traits or behavior that's going to change that chemical reaction over time. You can decide, make a, a conscious decision, and go through the motions to be nice or accommodating, but eventually you're going to hurt the person you're trying not to hurt. Now that I put that depressing idea out there, let's get back to animals. <laughs> and this is why I don't really go into dating much when I do these podcasts. I'd have everybody crying at the end of it. So back to owls. You know, I always heard from when I was a little girl that if you heard an owl cry in the night, it meant somebody was about to die. Now that's a pretty heavy superstition to carry around with you, especially if you're a little kid. Because owls freaking hunt at night, and I grew up in a very wooded area of the Appalachians. So I was hearing owls every single night, and thinking all these peoples were, were dying all over the place. 
<laughs> and I guess logistically it's kind of true. People do die every day. But that was just too much for me as a child to take in. So between dark, old Appalachian superstitions like that, and then being brought to a wax museum special torture chamber display when I was on vacation in Florida one time with an uncle who was into that stuff, and then growing up in a family of entertainers, folk musicians, artists, I developed sort of an oddball, morbid sense of humor and style. It's in everything I do. There's this twisted darkness in all my art, and I'm attracted to that stuff. And I'm a horror movie fanatic now. But where does this superstition come from? This link between owls and death? Well, it comes from a lot of places and older cultures, actually. We've been linking owls with darkness and death for centuries from multiple sources. There was the Middle Ages when people believed owls represented the souls of people who had died without ever being avenged. They also became a messenger for witches. Native American tribes here used to believe that the cry of an owl signified a death, which is probably where I heard it from. And certain tribes, like the Cherokee, believed that bony circles around an owl's eyes were made from the fingernails of the dead. And then there were the Vikings. It was said that they used the call of birds to signal each other right before attacking. And the owl cry was one of the easiest to make, so that's what they primarily used. So everybody knew there was about to be some bloodshed when they heard the cry of an owl whenever the Vikings landed in town. In Celtic traditions, the owl is a symbol of the underworld because it's a night creature and it can see through obscure darkness, representing mystery and the unknown and the deeper, darker meditations of the mind. It's pretty easy to recognize where this idea came from and why it's such an enigma. They're pretty majestic looking creatures and, and we all have a response to visuals whether we like to admit it or not. I can tell you in honesty, when that giant horned owl swooped over my head at dusk in Washington that time, I was entranced and I have thought about it ever since, secretly wishing it would happen again, knowing it probably wouldn't. I mean, how often does something like that happen? You can go visit a big horned owl at a conservatory or a reserve somewhere anytime you want. See it sitting on a stick somewhere looking at you. Pretty used to the ebb and flow of tourists and owl gazers, but to have a wild one fly over you and purposely brush your head with its belly? I know that wasn't an accident. Wild owls don't just bump into things. That was a special moment in time, and the visual I saw as it flew away captivated me for the rest of my life. And this is one of the experiences that really cemented in my desire to spend so much time out here in nature, to a point where I'm more inclined to be inconvenienced and have to put more effort into things, just to be in a place where there's a bigger chance of something like this happening again. 
because once you experience a very intimate bond with wildlife, there's no other thing in the world that can compare. Have enough of these experiences and it will change your whole life. Perspective, desires, everything. And perspective, what a powerful thing that is. Most people's perspective revolves around being shut in, separated, and psychologically removed from nature. With the way the brain develops neuropathic responses based on our habits, no wonder there's so much sickness and depression in the world. Our bodies and brains are designed to deal with the complexities and the vast evolution of the natural world and this big, big universe. And we spend most of our lives sitting in front of a media box surrounded by four walls. For those who do engage in a lot of outdoor activities, we've got something in common, man. There's an unspoken understanding there that none of us even needs to explain. It becomes fulfilling on a level that's just too hard to top with average activities like watching movies or shopping. Things like that just don't do it for you anymore. I have to admit I'd rather go hiking or sleep all night out under the stars of Death Valley than to go grab dinner and a show. Perspective is everything. And putting yourself out and into the natural world, that extraordinary, beautiful natural world, can give so many different things to experience and so much more to dream about. It's a surefire way to keep from getting old and boring. I don't get out as much in the wintertime. It's cold and it's uncomfortable. It's hard. But when that sun comes out again, the whole earth seems to open up and invite me in again. I can't stay still. I can't stay inside the house. It's starting to warm up here again in the southern Appalachians. I know I'll be out there every day in the sunshine doing something. Work or recreation or a nice balanced mix of both somehow if I can possibly pull it off. I wish those of you who are starting to experience warmer weather again the best of adventures this coming summer. This has been Natural and Wild with me, Christine Grayson. I want to thank those who have stuck by me and continue to support this podcast through my Patreon page. Chris Nolan, Bruce Presson, Yvonne Ragland, Robin Umber, Sheila McGregor, Arnold Bloom, and William Bishop and those who have donated to the virtual tip jar through PayPal. Both links at the bottom of my website, christinegrayson.com. Have a great weekend. Take some time to do something you really enjoy and share your dreams and the things that make you happy with those who inspire happiness in you. Take care and come back two weeks from now to listen again.